You're listening to Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochchurch.sg. I had proper worship this morning when I woke up. Uh, the Lord impressed me immediately concerning this passage of Scripture. But I want to begin an introduction by reading the words of Jesus concerning the Pharisees. There was a moment when the Pharisees were upset with little things. Uh, as usual, they were focused on the externalities, the, the things about the disciples. They were mad at the disciples. The disciples didn't wash their hands. And they become very critical. And they saw that as the number one reason why they should be excluded from all possibilities of actually being God's people. And certainly if Jesus allowed such behavior, then there, there, there it is right there. That's the evidence. That proves. We knew this guy was, was false. We know that he's a false prophet. But now, they didn't wash their hands. And, you know, Jesus had this to contend with. You know, that, now they saw him right before that, right? Like open blind eyes and the lame were walking, the ears, the ears um, opening up. And uh, people were getting healed, delivered, and set free. Deliverance, the, the, that's why he said at one point to them that uh, don't judge me by anything. Just judge, if you're going to judge me, judge me by my works. Look at what's going on. A tree, by its fruit, you judge it. What's the fruit? What's my fruit? And of course, they didn't like that at all. But they were focused on these stupid little petty things. And they had a pretentious form of worship and prayer that they believed. They, they believed that their structure and their organization was what would most please God. So uh, after this thing, I think that the, the fact that they took note and criticized that they had not washed their hands and that made them unclean, it just put Jesus over the edge. And so this is what he says in Mark 7, verse 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As he has written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. So we see here a couple of things. Rules taught by men. Traditions of men. Hearts that are not honoring the Lord. In fact, lips that are speaking, but the hearts being very distanced. Why? Because of a wrong kind of worship. They said, they worship me in vain. The last thing I would ever do or want to do is worship the Lord in vain. Come up with some form of structure. And uh, in thinking about this and in the, in the Word of God, uh, yesterday we began our series on David. I really enjoyed the start of that. Those of you that were here, you know the Lord was here with us. And uh, God's been giving me a lot of revelation about David. And we, we really spent the whole day yesterday just getting up to the actual oil being poured on David. Uh, we started in Ruth. And it took us hours to get to just the oil. But it was really rich and wonderful. All kinds of revelations that the Lord is speaking. So I appreciate and uh, later I was uh, thinking about it. Uh, something happened yesterday uh, during the whole process. We, we accessed David's heart. His heart. I felt his heart come into the room. It was amazing. Like the, the, of course, I speak in that regard of the same thing that it says that the spirit of Elijah does rest on John. Um, John the Baptist said he operated in the spirit of Elijah and Elijah's spirit then was on Elisha that we see gifts and abilities and things that are part of a person also going by extension. And I think we can access all those things, but I felt that, and I felt that it was a good start for us to really go deep into the life of David. There's a lot of things we're going to see, but this is a passage in the life of David that's not going to come into far in the future, but we're going to read quickly through some things about bringing in the presence of God, specifically uh, misunderstanding the presence of God, because this is a mistake that was made in the ministry of David, and bear with me because I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture, because the story has to be read entirely for the finality of it to make sense. The the culmination of all that we're about to read is is a simple song that David wrote, and his response to the error and the fixing of the error, misunderstanding the presence of God and how to properly worship. Then he fixed it, and it's like he came up with a little recipe. He said, "Okay, Asaph." 
who was the director of the choirs, he said, this is the song, you just sing this. And so later at the end of reading all this, we're going to break down that, that song as kind of like seven elements of proper worship and what helps us to be able to truly relate. So 1 Chronicles 13.1, it begins, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who were with them in their towns and pasture lands, to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us. For we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. Actually, there are some good things here so far that we're already seeing, that the whole assembly was in agreement. These are New Testament principles also, that we all be together in one place, that we come into agreement, whatever we agree on, he will do. And he is concerned about their opinion. If it seems good to you, he says, and if it is the will of the Lord, because that really is what we need. Uh, a worship atmosphere forms around that, that we be in agreement, that what seems good to you, what seems good to me, songs that are easy for us to use, all those issues are there. But it goes on, it says, so the whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembled all the Israelites from the, the Shehor River in Egypt to Lebohamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all the Israelites with him went to Bala of Judah, Kiriath-Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned between the cherubim. Now, this is speaking of, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Ark that is called by the name. It says, we know that this is that the box that was created out of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and the top was put on it, and on the lid was the ornate carvings of the seraphim with their wings touching at the top. The long poles were put there, and that box uh, had a mercy seat on it. And that's where the presence of the Lord, that's where heaven met earth in their environment in their realm it would meet right there in that holy of holies that, that had to be put there and it's the representation of the presence of God God centered around that uh, note that during the reign of Saul they did not even use the ark I don't know why you would not want to use the ark but I have found that there are sometimes administrations that don't seem to need the ark with them I've seen churches that don't seem to really need the, the presence of the Lord, provided everything is in order and they do things in the structure. And so there, this is what I was referring to when I read what Jesus said about the possibility of our lips saying something. And I'm not criticizing anyone else. I put this to myself. I think I never want my lips to do something and my heart is not connected. I have to make sure that my heart is continuously connected, as do we all. And so here they're going to bring up from... There, the ark of God the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. That sounds good. Sounds like a really good arrangement of musical instruments. Uh, all of this showing that you can have all the voices and all the instruments and everything together at a time that doing what you believe is best. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which is more or less the place that Uzzah died. Um, that's the forever. In other words, the name stuck there because that would be a very memorable moment for Uzzah. I feel sorry for Uzzah. Uzzah was trying to protect something. Everybody's trying to do the right thing, is my point. And David was afraid of God that day, and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? And he did not 
take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. Because, of course, where the Spirit of the Lord is, where the presence of God is, in this case represented by this ark, there is going to be blessings always in the presence of blessings. And this house, Obed-Edom's house, happened to be right near. In other words, they didn't want to mess with this thing much more. Uh, there are people who do have encounters, experiences with God, uh, and they become fearful, things they become, whatever, they mishandle certain things. And that's the whole point, is there is something going wrong here. David does not understand it. He's angry. He's afraid. Uh, he has stepped into some form of error and does not understand why or how. But there's some more details we go on. In uh, 1 Chronicles 15, it says that we did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. I quote that out of this verse. How to do it in the prescribed way. Now we're looking at this metaphorically or figuratively. We know that we do not have a prescription or a prescribed way of doing the things that we do, but we're going to find out that they fix what was wrong and they do it right. That, in other words, there was a prescribed way. There's a right way and a wrong way to do everything. There's a right way and a wrong way to bring God's presence into our life. To bring God's presence into our church and into, into our, our futures, our lives, everything, our families. And here we continue reading in verse 11. Then David summoned Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, the Levites, he said to them, You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord, our God, broke out in anger against us. And we did not inquire of Him about how to do it in the prescribed way. It says there that the Levites, because you, the Levites, did not. In other words, in that time, there were specific people that were designated to handle the ark. And that was the Levites. Of them, the clan of the Kohathites were the ones that moved furniture and carried these things. But the higher-ranking priests actually had to carry the, the ark itself. It had to be done in a right way. And so uh, David did not know this. He operated out of ignorance. And this is what en ended up costing a man his life uh, as we look at it figuratively, uh, there is a great price to pay when we don't do things the right way. This continues in verse 14. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders. In other words, they got rid of the cart. And because nobody said anything about a cart. Nobody, you know, nobody said anything about a cart. That there was a way that was going to honor him, and the way the ark, the prescribed way, was that they put it on poles and they carry it, and that the people carrying it be the Levites. So now things are being done correctly, and they carry the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders, as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers to sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. So here we see that, that they're figuring out that the mistake that they made was that they did not do it the way that it was supposed to be done or the prescribed way. They realized that the first time that they tried, they, they didn't honor the Lord by following what God wants. Uh, God wants something. It says the Father is looking for true worshipers. So what is that? True worshiper. If there is a true worshiper, that means there are false worshipers. There are people who worship in spirit and in truth. So we can start to qualify what a false worshiper or an improper worshiper would be. It's someone that's not worshiping in spirit. What is the opposite? The Bible makes very clearly uh, written two distinctions. There's flesh and there's spirit. So there's the carnal side, and then there's the spiritual side. So there are people who can operate in the flesh and worship in the flesh. 
And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus said that kind of worship is in vain. God, he's not interested in it. He's not concerned about that. There are great endeavors out there where people are using the gifts and the talents that they have in their flesh to do things. The sad thing is that in the church we find people that are operating in the flesh and in the world we find people that are operating in the spirit misusing the anointing that's on their lives. It's like it's mixed up. You see artists that have carried the gifts, they have the anointing, they're Levites. God has empowered them to do that and they take it into the secular world to get rich with it. They're abusing that gift that's on them but because the gifts and the callings are without repentance, they still have that gift, that anointing. I saw, to one far extreme, I was watching this um, audition on one of these TV shows, and yet now you're seeing more and more worship leaders showing up on The Voice, showing up on, uh, you know, uh, Britain's Got Talent, or whatever, these shows that you'll find these people, they'll ask them about their background, more and more of them have been saying, oh, I'm a worship leader, I'm a choir director, so you see Levites are starting to go into these realms, but they're not going there to necessarily glorify God. Some of them might be. But I see that there's a lot of misuse. That's not that's putting the ark on a cart and rolling it along. You might as well just be the Philistines. They put the ark on a cart too. They, they put it there and they made a bunch of golden tumors and rats and and because of the curses that had come upon them and they just sent it down the road and the oxen knew exactly where to go. <laughs> And they took the cart. One of the greatest messages I ever heard in my whole life was by R.W. Shambach about it was entitled The Cart is Coming Down the Road. And it all surrounded when the ark was coming back. It was so powerful. Because he in his high-pitched, powerful evangelist voice, about every every couple of minutes he would say that phrase, the ark is coming down the road, you know, and the power of God would hit every time he would say it. Because it's like the glory is coming. The glory is coming. It was a really good message. I need to try to track that message. I actually found some YouTube videos of R.W. Schoenbach in the 1980s when I was able to see them. Really powerful. I'll post them for you if you're interested. But I'm going to look for that message. Really good. But the Philistines, they put the ark on a cart. And they sent it away as a peace offering with the golden tumors. And how many of you see those in jewelry shops nearby? Excuse me, do you have any golden tumors? But they did. Golden rats. I've seen golden rats. I've seen golden rats, right? Like in the year of the rat, yeah, surely. It's like the premier object in the front window. There's a golden rat that you can take to your house and honor that aspect of that culture. But in this case, Pharisees make golden tumors. And they put it on the cart. So a couple of times you see the ark on the cart, but it wasn't supposed to, it's never supposed to be on a cart. And there are things that are just not supposed to be. You're not supposed to take that glory into the secular realms unless you're bringing it as proof positive of the manifestation of God. But to such extremes, I see this guy, and it broke my heart. I actually wept when I saw this. Uh, he got up and he did an audition and he sang beautifully, powerfully. I could feel it. When he sang, I felt, I felt like my heart moved and, I, and it felt like he was anointed. And they, they immediately turn around their chairs and they look at him and they speak to him. Turned out that he was a worship leader uh, during the day. But at night, he was a performing transvestite. And he said this to, to the, uh, the, the people there. And of course, they were like, awesome. You know, you have the likes of certain individuals that live a lifestyle that that's wonderful. And really, the people even that, they would love to see the church become broken down to a level where there is no definition or specificity of morality. That it just, They're trying to weaken and break it down more and more. But it really broke my heart because I felt the anointing on this transvestite. And I thought, wow, you know, that, that I, I'm not judging a transvestite or judging someone in what they do with their life, but I know what the Word of God says, and I know what the gifts are for. You see, you see a lot of misuse of things, and we need to be very, very careful. I, I actually consider it every Friday, or the Fridays that I do music uh, at our restaurant. I do some secular music and I play those songs, but I use it as a door to be able to share the gospel. And people ask, and I'm able to tell them about Jesus and what I do. Actually, I'm a worship leader. And more than a few times they have said, oh, do one of your songs. 
And so I do. You know, I pull out, I remember when I walked in the dark. You know, this testimony, powerful words about salvation, and they tear up, and it, gives, it, it opens a door. Here, though, we see that they, they know. They realize their error. We didn't do it the right way. We didn't do it in the way that was prescribed. So they commission these Levites uh, to, to do the right thing, to take, and they're starting to make it right. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers and so that they would do the right thing. And so they did. And here they are, accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. But in the interim, in some verses that we're not reading, he went to the law and found out the exact details of what was prescribed. So now he's like got a checklist of what God expected and what God demanded in the law of Moses. And he did dot every I and cross every T, and now he is doing it right. And now this time they, they have success. Successfully bringing in the presence of God in verse 25. We're going to skip down. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of units of a thousand went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. First of all, I want to mention something about Obed-Edom. I feel sorry for him because imagine Obed-Edom is in this group and his family's there watching and right near his house where the threshing floor was, the cart shifts and if Uzzah jumps out and, yeah, and dies and everybody's staring at this ark that just killed a man as far as they're concerned and David is frantic he's angry which means he's showing his anger and he's very disturbed, upset afraid of God he's afraid of that ark how many of you would bet nobody touched that ark after Uzzah was dead nobody was uh, you know, going to try and see if they could touch it so they just left it balanced on the cart. But now what do you do with it? And they just looked for the closest house and it was Obed-Edom's house. <laughs> what do you think Obed-Edom felt in the moment that they just started redirecting the cart? Just put it in his house. Like, gosh, can you imagine that first evening with the ark in your living room? In your family? You probably wouldn't even let your kids out of their bedrooms. Like, stay, stay back there, children. Stay back there. You'd probably spend the night, you know, half in and out of the doorway <laughs> watching the ark, making sure that nothing got near it. But it says it was there for quite a while, right? So as it stayed there for the length of time that it was there, how many of you remember the time? I forgot exactly. Three months. All right, so three. imagine three months with the ark of the covenant in your house. He got blessed. I can imagine all the levels of blessing that must have. First of all, the peace and rest. I'm sure after a while, you allowed the kids to come in and actually sit close enough to see the ark. And probably people started coming. I would, wouldn't you? If you were just even a distant neighbor of Obed, Edom, you're, you're going to go want to see, check it out and look. Maybe not go in there. <laughs> But maybe go in there and just put your hands behind your back, make sure that you don't touch it. But it would be a fascinating thing to see. But then all of a sudden, some freaky things started happening. God blessed him so much that I imagine like his his vines started multiplying, his grapes got bigger, watermelons started swelling up larger than their normal size. Blessings started happening that nobody could explain. I bet that by the time, because if you really learn to live with the presence of God, you respect it properly, the blessings are immeasurable. And it is not easy to really live in the presence of God. It does require great sacrifice. It requires great focus, and that's why many people do not. It requires a lot of care and concern about how you treat the presence. It has to be absolutely respected and honored and adored. You must say and acknowledge that that ark is in your life, it's in your house, and not do the wrong thing. It will totally, how many of you would agree that Obed-Edom's house was completely transformed? The decorum, the activities, uh, they're not doing things that were done in that house before. They may have been doing some things you shouldn't do, I guarantee, with the ark in the house, they weren't doing them any longer. <laughs> Suddenly the kids are holy, the wife is holy, the goats are holy. Like everything is being really careful and reverent. Why? Because God, in the representation of the ark, is in the middle of the house, sitting there. And this happens when the presence of the Lord comes 
into your life. It transforms every decision you make, every thought you make, every idea you make. And I know after three months, because it only takes three weeks to develop a habit, so by this time, they, they it was the habit. They woke up in the morning excited to see the ark. And I imagine at this time that King David sends word that they're going to take it out of the house, they must have been heartbroken. Really sad. I, I would have been heartbroken. Like, oh, you, you, it's okay, you know. You can leave it here. <laughs> Just leave it. So we'll keep an eye on it, King David. Just you leave it here. No problem. I don't mind at all. No, it's rightful place. It must go. It, would, it must have been really heart, heartbreaking. So what happened? When it left, Obed-Edom went with it. He was part of the procession. So they went where the ark went. And that's exactly what the Israelites did in the very beginning. And that's the whole thing. That even then, though the presence of the Lord may move into your house, there's a moment when it must move on to accomplish the, the purposes of the Father. And when that happens, you have a choice. You stay at your house without an ark, or you follow it. And Obed Edom follows it. They go where the ark goes. It was part of his job. I'm sure the kids were walking behind it too. I'm sure the wife, I'm sure the goats were trying to get out of the pen. Oh no, don't take it away. Because they were multiplying. This goat has like seven kids. And it's, you know, before the other goats on the other side only have like one or two. They're multiplying. There's blessings there. So they're happy. If you allow the ark of the Lord to be planted in your home and you just wait long enough, I guarantee you'll see the blessings in your life. And you will make sure that wherever the ark goes, you will follow it. So David and the elders, vision, they, they bring these, they go to Obed-Edom's house with rejoicing. Verse 26, because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. This is as per the prescription of law. They knew now, okay, we, we didn't do that the first time. We, there has to be some sacrifices. Because to accommodate the presence of the Lord, you must sacrifice. And you have to do the sacrifices that God, not sacrifices you think are okay. If it were up to them, imagine if it was always man's choice what we would sacrifice. How many of you know that we would sacrifice a lot less than is required? I would. If I can get away with ringing a dove's neck and throwing it in the ground... Instead of going out and buying seven cows, heifers, and goats, and having to slaughter them, that's a lot more work. If he's hey, he's happy with a dove, it's no problem. I'll just crack his neck, throw it out. No, that's not a proper thing, and that's why it was written down. This is right. God will dictate to you the sacrifices that are necessary for you to maintain a relationship with His presence, to stay close to Him. You say, well, I thought it was by grace. It is. But as He leads you on, there are prices to be paid for you to stay in the place of service and in proximity to God's purpose or the design of His presence is to lead you. And here we see that they, the Levites, they offer these sacrifices. Verse 27, Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark. See, the first time they just had their old clothes on, they had like, you know, cargo pants and t-shirts. <laughs> Some Crocs, just you know, like partying out there with the ark. It was a bit irreverent, honestly. Now they have especially made outfits just for this procession, and and they want to make sure that they are as pleasing as possible. I think our attitudes toward the procession should be that that we, whenever we go into the house of the Lord, we worship together. We want the presence of the Lord to come. We need to pay attention to the way that we present ourselves to God. I'm not talking about the externalities of the clothes you wear. Don't worry. You wear what you want, but we have other clothing. We are clothed in Christ. The Bible speaks of clothing that is spiritual. Make sure that you are wrapped up in the things of the Lord and that be your priority. So here, David's clothed in, the, in this robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and as were the singers. And... Kenaniah, who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant. I like that it says all Israel. Because remember, he sent out word and told everybody. Uh, now they saw the witness of what happened wrong. 
So then they got it right, but they've all come back together. Now it's all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts and with the sounding of ram's horns. Yes, it's a shofar. Uh, and trumpets. <laughs> and cymbals. And the playing of lyres and harps. Uh, there is a place and a time for a shofar. But I will also let you know that these shofars were in tune. <laughs> A person who knows how to properly play a shofar will play it in tune. But often when people blow in shofars in the middle of a church service or something, and uh, they're not always in tune. They are. They're supposed to be in tune. It's like when you hear someone practicing violin in the HDB flat when you're walking through the void there. And you want to find them to put them out of their misery. Someone is torturing someone. Not even close. It resembles slightly a scale, but... Wow, because violin, violin is one of the hardest instruments to play, honestly. It has such delicate movements to get the tone right. And I know because I studied it and tried it, and I got pretty good at it for a while, but it took a lot of work. So in this case, we see that these ram's horns, shofars, they're tuned. I bet they're beautiful, but they're, they're going out of their way to make special clothing. They're making sure the shofar players are doing a good job. So it is beautiful. The cymbals, the trumpets, there's trumpets. I, I love trumpets. I, I love um, uh, hearing trumpets. It's kind of hard to put, we don't have a horn section, but a horn section in a, in a church service is great. Horns have kind of moved away. I would like to see that come back one day. But once again, we would need people to really know how to play them. One of my favorite musical groups, although it's not a Christian group, is the band Chicago. And their horns. I always dream, imagine if we could use those horn sections in worship. Wouldn't that be beautiful? So I'm not against horns, amen? Making sure I'm not an anti-hornite, you know? I, I'm okay with horns. Anti-hornite. I may have invented that term. It might be a real term. I don't know if split up. So this time they're successful. Uh, the difference was so important that the Word of God continues in chapter 16 by giving very specific details about why they did it right this time. And so we're going to see the details to learn from the pattern so that we can be sure to honor the Lord. So the question is, how, how do we bring God's presence into our life? Well, let's read verses 1 through 7 of the 16th chapter. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for. By the way, this is the tabernacle of David. You hear that reference in the New Testament about the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Uh, that is the one that God implanted. This type, in other words, David's type. Because remember, even yesterday we were talking about the fact that David was a man after God's heart. God, whatever David said, he loved it. David was awesome. And so he's his friend. David set up a tent. This is not the tabernacle, by the way. It's a tent. It's not the tent of me. It's not... He's not following the exact rules, the acacia wood poles, and it would have taken months and months to get it all together to set it up right, because there really, we don't even know that there was that tent any longer in existence. The ark remained, but it wasn't even being used during the reign of Saul. So at this point, David just pitches a tent, but God's cool with it and loves it so much that in the New Testament paradigm, he says, that's what we're going to restore, that kind of worship. Uh, David's tent tabernacle of David. And there's a lot to teach in that realm, which I'm not going to teach right now, but it's very interesting. So they brought the ark of God, and they put it in this tent that David had pitched for it, and they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each Israelite man and woman, and he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to make petition, to give thanks, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, Zechariah second, then Jeel, and uh, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Matathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Oberinum, same one, that guy, so he's there, and Jehiel. They were to play the lyres and harps, and Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. And that day, in verse 7, we see, uh, as we're 
prepping to see the seven things that we do in proper worship. Uh, these are elements that are broken down in what we're about to see. That day David first committed to Asaph and his associates this psalm of thanks to the Lord. So this is a specific psalm that David wrote that is actually embedded in Chronicles. Most of the psalms never made it. They were left in the book of Psalms. But this one is so important. In fact, if you did a study of psalms that made it into the narrative, uh, they're very important. You will find them repeated in the psalms, but this one is why it's here and it's in this passage because I believe God wanted us to take a look at it. Seven things that we do in proper worship. And then we go on to the psalm where we do it. Number one, which is give thanks. He says, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known among the nations what He has done. And actually this is the first and most important part of honoring the presence of the Lord is to have a heart of gratitude toward Him for all that He has done for you. We read another psalm that says we enter His gates with what in our hearts? Thanksgiving. His courts with praise, but thanksgiving. Uh, the first thing is things of gratitude. That the, if, you, if we want to worship correctly, the first element we see in David's prescription of what seems right, and they just did it right, God's pleased with it, and it works from now on, is giving thanks. And that's why you'll notice at the beginning of every time that we get together, we're going to worship the Lord, I ask you, uh, don't you have, what did God do, do, in your life. It's specifically the things He does. I remember the difference between praise and worship. Praise is thanking Him for what He does. Worship is honoring who He is, but the actions of God, the works, the wonders, how God performs in your life, not things you do, but things He did for you. That is what really invokes the highest praise from when you're just overwhelmed because God did something specially for you, you feel that sense of joy. Uh, that that you, you feel like jumping up and down, rejoicing. And that's exactly what giving thanks in this case is. We're going to get the joy later, but giving thanks is first. It's the first and most important. Gratitude can only be a reality through action. I said it yesterday, I'll say it again. That gratitude is not an attitude, but an action. Uh, in fact, the attitude of gratitude would be action. Because you're not going to be able to see it unless something is done. And this is exactly what, what we have connected. So the gratitude can only be a reality through action. It, it is never enough to simply say thanks to the Lord. So we offer Him something. Uh, we give Him something from the platform or the foundation of gratitude or thankfulness to Him. We then... Start. That is, I can't really worship them. I can't get to the later realms of worship in the depths without first starting in this realm. You understand? That I'm grateful. And I really have to be grateful. I have to conjure up from within myself. I don't have to invent. I just need to find it uh, and, and bring it to life. Because there's, there are so many benefits. We forget them. That's why the Bible says forget not the benefits. Because we forget the benefits, but you've got to recall them. Sometimes we forget the benefits simply because we have so many tragedies at a given moment. So many difficulties, trials, hardships, that we tend to lose sight of the fact that we're still breathing. And that we still really, we're still alive. So there is always a reason to give thanks. Always a reason to give thanks. And it becomes more clear the less you have. And I, I see that people, the gratitude that I saw, the, the highest levels of gratitude that I've seen expressed in church services have always been in third world countries. It's like the less the people have, the more grateful they are. Hmm. Isn't that ironic? That the ones who have most are less grateful for what they have. But the ones who have least, let me explain it to you. What if you have absolutely nothing? Anything I give you, you will be very thankful I have given uh, very small things to people and they've been reduced to tears in third world environments. I have taken care of. There are people who were stressed and concerned and worried and their life was coming to an end because they couldn't pay $10 for something. And it meant the end of the, the 10 $10. And so it's just $10, right, to me and you. 
So I brought them to the side without anyone knowing and said, what's the issue? How can I help you? And I had $10. So I said, look, we're just in the name of Jesus, I'm going to pass this to you. I feel like the Lord wants this. And they've trembled, wept, and fell and cried. Why? Because they had nothing. They had nothing. And that's where gratitude comes. Sometimes there's some people... Uh, I hope that God doesn't want to develop our gratitude by taking away the things that we have. It's possible. Don't you do that with your own children? Think about it. When your children are not grateful for the things they have and you get angry, what do you do? You take them away from One time it was Thanksgiving. I'll never forget this. Michael and I were talking about it the other day. Michael will never forget it for the rest of his life. It was Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving Day at the table when we eat, we go around the table and ask people, what are they thankful for? And each person was saying something. And Michael just couldn't think of anything. I said, Michael. You know, now I knew he had Game Boys and you know, he has got stuff that he loves and toys. And he was blessed. My children are blessed. They've always been blessed. And I said, Michael, there has to be something that you're grateful for. You can't think of one thing. I got so furious. He said, this, this moment stood out. It's still to this day when he thinks about it, he says he gets nervous. And he's a man, a doll, married, a child. You know, he's, he's by himself. He can do whatever. He's successful. But still, I was so angry at him, I threw him out of the house. Now, he was about seven years old, but I threw him out of the house. Because it just made me so mad. As a father, that working to provide all these blessings for him in India, we were living in India in, in the midst of so much, and he had so much more than the majority of the people around him. The lack of gratitude made me so angry, I put him out into the hallway. And we lived in this building called Deep Darshan, and that place was dark. It looked, in that hall, we had one of those lifts with the rusty, uh, flexible gate, and you had to jam it several times to get it to engage. And it had a, when the door was open, they had this like the sound, and it was that environment. It's only in India you find exactly that thing. And every, there is red beetle nut stains all over the floor, the corners, the walls. It's just, it's, it's new. It's kind of dirty looking. And our house was clean. From the door in, we kept it immaculate and set. But that little hall, we were living in a very poor area. And that's where I put him. I put him out into that hall. I said, you stay out here until you think of something you're grateful for, and I slammed the door. <laughs> and he just sat out there. And he started crying. He started thinking about it. And gratitude rose up in his heart. <laughs> he started thinking of all kinds of things. Sitting on the beetle-nut stained floor, and make it worse, the neighbors across the thing that he didn't really know very well, they were kind of spooky, he, they opened the door. Come, little boy, come to us. Come. And he's like, ah. As far as he's concerned, zombies are attacking him. And, he, and I hear this pounding on the door. And I open the door and crack, yes. I'm so grateful for this. For that. He's like, give me a list. And I open the door. I say, come and so I hope we don't have to get to that point that the Lord, I, I want to thank the Lord. I don't, I, want to forget, I don't want to forget the benefits of the Lord. I recall them. I recite them. I tell him, thank you. I think of the thing. I thank him for the trials. I thank him for the persecutions. I think, thank you, God, for honoring me. I count it all joy because you gave me this. And from that platform, I'm ready to go to the next level. It takes time to honor the Lord through thanksgiving. It's a, it's a work. But he's worth it. Amen? And we have to express our gratitude like that to him. Uh, you must sacrifice your time to spend it on him in an expression of that thankfulness that should be there. Next one, number two, is sing praise. He goes on, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Now, this is what we are also grateful for, the things that he does, his wonderful acts, but we now can put that into song. Um, and we do that. We'll be singing these songs, you know, my Savior lives, my Savior loves, and, you know, I'm going home where the streets are golden. You know, all these things that we sing that are out of gratitude for the Lord, we put it into words. So praise and worship is an integral and important part of the eternal ambiance of heaven. That's why that's what's going on up there. It's a myriads of, of people, the redeemed, the elders, the seraphim, uh, the angels, they're all up there doing one thing, praising God. And that's heaven. 
That's perfect. That's what God... In other words, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is it in heaven? In heaven, it's totally under the control of God. How many of you believe God is in control of heaven? Uh, one guy tried to change that. It didn't work out. Lucifer was expelled. He was shown up. So it, he is the boss of heaven. You say, well, he's the boss of the earth too. Not really. Satan is the god of this world. He lets him do that. But heaven is God's. And he's in control of it. And so that means he sets the thermostat of the air conditioning system to the temperature he wants it to be. Right? So the atmosphere of heaven is adjusted to his liking. There's no angel going over there and readjusting it to the temperature they want. <laughs> Lucifer may have tried to do that. But no, it is. So what is the atmosphere of heaven? It's worship. It's praise. It's constantly resonating praise. So we know that our voices singing. Out of your gratitude, then you let you lift up your voice and sing it out. Don't dry mumble the songs in worship. It's not good enough. He deserves more than that. You know what dry mumbling is, right? You just... I was taught a long time ago, this is a little secret, if you want to dry mumble, you don't know the words of a song, but you want to make it look like you do, just say the word watermelon again and again and again. <laughs> just don't say it out loud. And everybody's singing, just try to match it. It looks like you actually know the walk. It does, it works. This watermelon has all the motions to it. But don't do that. <laughs> See, that's why we put the words of the song up here. Uh, that's why we, we wholeheartedly sing it. I love when I hear the voices. Ever notice those moments, and I don't always do it because I love to hear my own voice so much, that sometimes I stop and I let you sing to me. I just want to hear it. I say, sing at church, and I'll just play, and your voice is just powerful. Whenever we do it, there's a release of power. It's very anointed. It's always anointed, but it's even more, because it is me and God hearing you do exactly what David has said. Sing praise to Him. Very simple. For proper praise, you must think of the most recent events and actions of God in your life. And that, that foundation of thanksgiving, and then your gratitude, and on that, you sing your gratitude. And when you do, think. Think in relation to what he's doing in these days. Number three, glory in his name. Glory in his holy name. This can be felt when we do the song, um, There is Power in the Name of Jesus. You know, when we get to there is power in the name of Jesus. You know, when, then the name itself carries so much weight and authority because there's no, there's no greater name than that name. The name of God is powerful. See, glory in His holy name. This means that we rejoice, or we, the word halal, primitive root, to be clear, the sound, uh, usually of color, but it means to shine, hence to make a show, to boast. That is glory in His name. That's basically say His name out loud. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So when we glory in His holy name, we boast and rave about all that God is. We're singing, but this element of glory in His name is centered around His name put on it. You can talk all you want about someone doing something, but if you hide their name, no one knows who to direct it, the, the appreciation of the praise to. Anonymous gifts are like that. You're grateful. If I said, look, somebody told me to give you this, and I give you that gift of that uh, money or whatever, and you don't know who it is, you don't know who to direct your things to. And you don't know. You're grateful, but your gratitude stays with you, doesn't it? You, can, you give it to God, and God will then take it and pass it on through some supernatural way to the person that did it. And then there is a principle in the Scripture. Of course, it says, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, or vice versa. But in this particular case with God, God is the one that is supposed to hear you say His name, that you pin it to Him, that you say it's Him. You, God, give all the glory to God. That is glory in His name. If His name is on it, you know it belongs to Him. If it is His, put His name on it. You understand? So if He's done a thing, if people see you blessed, don't just say, yeah, I'm blessed. Say, no, Jesus Christ did this. You give glory to God by putting His name on it. This is what this means. To try to rave about God until... Um, uh, you run out of words is a good endeavor. I do this when I pray on my own. That's what I do. I make an attempt to 
in the most verbose way, using as many words as articulately as I can, pull, pulling out all the stops. I, I bring online my entire vocabulary, words I do not even use with people, and because God knows them all. And I've learned them in prayer. I get as articulate as I can when I'm by myself in prayer. And I just, I go, I rave and rant about His greatness. You are, and I just, I just don't stop. And the more I do it, I, I get, and then I work to a frenzy where I'm to the point where I feel like I'm trembling. And I'm shaking and tears are coming out. And then I push far enough and something interesting happens. My words don't come out anymore and tongues come out. And then I cross that line where I no longer have the ability to say more. And then the Holy Spirit says, tag, I got it. And He takes it and takes over with my spirit. My spirit starts then speaking. Remember, that's exactly what they understood on the second chapter of Acts on the day of Pentecost. They heard them saying what? Talking about the what? The marvelous works of God. So when you pray in tongues, it's what it is. It's just praise. There are other purposes of it, of course, to deliver messages. We know from the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, it gives a description of that. But mostly, from actual image in the Bible, what we have, we see in the book of Acts, that it is praise coming up. And I love when I, when I run out of something, I go into that, and I try to rave until I run out of words, and then I try to be even harder, and the more I brag about him, and the more he's honored and pleased would I express? I have never seen God ever stop me from praising. I'm exhausted and have to move on because I'm worn out. I basically I exhaust myself, but I've never had God say, "Okay, okay, you don't need to praise me." He he eats it up. I just picture him just soaking it up. It's like yes, yes. <laughs> He's very, very egocentric. <laughs> he is very self-centered. He's very kind and benevolent, but he he's jealous. He does not want to, he does not want anyone to get attention that doesn't come to him first. He don't mind you sharing a little bit, but nah, don't forget me. He's like a jealous girlfriend in that respect, or a jealous boyfriend. Does not want to share. And and so where when you give him that and praise him and praise him and praise him, he loves it. He enjoys it. And I enjoy doing it. And there's a release of power and blessings that come from it. I like this next part. Allow joy. It says, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Uh, this means to be glad, to express it, to allow His joy to flow through you. Allow the people to experience joy. That's right worship. And there are realms of worship in some places that in fact curtail or put a stop to joy. They don't want joy. But yet here, David is saying, no, no, let the hearts uh, of those who seek the Lord rejoice. And that's what he's saying, allow them. Why would you have to tell, so it's like this. The dog is outside and you don't open the door and somebody wants the dog to come inside. What do they say? Let the dog in. Or that old song, who let the dogs out? <laughs> you know, because you let, in other words, you have to allow it. This is the same thing. Which means if you have to let it, it means it's not being done. And you have to allow it to happen. Uh, I let the people rejoice in the service. If you start laughing, if you experience the joy of the Lord, I'm not going to stand in the way of that. I allow it. And this is exactly what this means. Many people have omitted joy from what they consider to be the presence of God. When in fact the joy of the Lord is the very strength of our honor and worship. The next one he says, uh, look to the Lord. Just look to the Lord and His strength. This means not your strength. Don't lean on the arm of the flesh. Don't depend upon the strength of humanity, yourself, or any other person. Look to the Lord and His strength. But then He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not your strength. He's the one strengthening you. So that's what we look to. We look to the Lord and His strength. Most of the time we're looking at ourselves and our ability our own abilities to live our daily life. And this is excluding the Lord's presence from our life. It's beginning to live for ourselves. No, we look to the Lord. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Part of honoring Him is to focus on Him and Him alone. And we look at Him and Him alone and forget about ourselves. And if we do, soon we forget all the problems 
in His presence, in His presence is, is fullness of joy, and we begin to get lost there. And if you have problems that your strength cannot handle, then you look to Him and His strength, and He can handle it. He'll take care of it. His strength comes from this interaction and focus. If you want God's strength to operate in you, you need to look at it. And then also, it, there's look to Him for His strength. There's another dimension that goes even deeper than this in number six. Seek His face always. Now, I can look to you and communicate with you, but it's a whole different matter when I get in your face. It's very personal. You know, I can look at people in the room I can talk to you, hey, Shereen, hey, Matthews, you know, hey, Johnny, can you do this, that? You know, I, I can communicate. But if I go right over to you and get close, you know, like movie star close, in your face, you know, in movies, you ever notice that television shows, movies, you don't really pay attention, but when they're acting, they are uncomfortably close to each other. It just doesn't look like it on the TV. Next time, just check it out. You see a TV show and people are in a dialogue with each other, they're this close to each other's faces. I've noticed on Star Trek, like they'll be standing on the bridge, and you have one guy standing, and, and like this is Commander Riker, and Captain Picard is literally like this against him. They're touching, and he's talking to him, you know, Commander Riker. He's like, in his face. Because, why? Because they had to make it fit on screen. But we don't see it. But look at it, it's really interesting. You think, what if I did that with people? You know, what if that's how, you know, if you're there and I just go, how are you today? <laughs> just right in your face. This is what it said, seek his face. Don't just seek him, seek his face. I can look at the back of Matthew's head. And it's beautiful. It's a, you know, beautiful waves of grayish hair. But if I go around the front and look straight in his face, that's a whole different thing. And that way we communicate. You ever look straight into somebody's eyes? Besides the fact that it's a little creepy, it, it also causes emotions to move. So that's the, this is tough. If you if you seek his face, you look in his eyes. You know the New Testament talks about looking in his face, in the face of Jesus Christ, about where the, we get the power of God, the treasure, the anointing, the Spirit that we get in connection when we look at him in his face. How many have ever looked into the face of God? is scary. You become undone. Uh, you melt. You feel like, you know, you look in his face, you have an encounter with him like that, you just, you feel like you fall apart. And that's how you know you looked in his face. So that's what we want. God's face can be revealed to anyone that truly seeks it. But you have to want it. Just like anyone in this room, you could really get in their face if you wanted to. Try it later if you want. They may not like it, but you go right in their face. Look straight in their face. Whose face do you get in, first of all? Practically nobody in life. You talk across the office space, you talk across the living room. Uh, it's usually just family. Usually very specifically husband and wife. You get right in their face. I may get in my little girl's face. Uh, newborn baby, yeah. Logan these days, I'll get in his face. I'll rub my nose on his nose. And, and you know, you do that with babies and because they really can't object. They don't have a choice. <laughs> and it ministers to you emotionally on some level that maybe you need it. You can get away with it with a baby. Other than that, you're only going to do that with someone that you truly love, that you're into. You actually touch their face. Or actually stare into their eyeballs. <laughs> that is unnerving unless you have a real intimate connection with that individual. That's what this is talking about. Do that with Jesus. Look into those eyes of fire. Look straight. In the moments I've done it, I just uh, I fall apart and everything is done. That's an element of worship that we need. That kind of close. Number seven, he goes on to say, remember the wonders he has done. Remember the wonders. He's done a lot of wonders for a lot of people, but sometimes we forget them. But that is really probably the seventh and final part of this. He says, remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced, O descendants of Israel, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. And he's saying this because he remembers. Why don't you remember? Because he's never going to forget it. 
the only thing he's going to forget is your sins. And he's going to separate you from them as far as the east is from the west. And that, that's that one song where we sing, um, 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 uh, forgetting all our sins, you remember all your promises. A really good line. You know, some people really know how to write good songs, as is David writing here. He's Lord. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word he commanded for a thousand generations. Uh, the covenant he made with Abraham. The oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree to Israel as an everlasting covenant. And that's how much he cares for us. We need to remember that. And this is what David has said. So we have to remember everything that the Lord has done for us by saving us. He washed us in His blood that He shed on the cross. We must remember all that He's done to take us where we are today. We stand where we are today in life because our Maker has brought us there. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all His benefits. And that's what we need to do. So we come now to the summation of it all. Seven things that we do in proper worship. Now remember that this psalm, with these seven things, was written because a mistake was made. And then they made it right. And he said, this is the right way. And he put it into a psalm. And very clearly, give thanks, sing praise, glory in his name. Allow joy. Uh, allow emotions, period. Be emotional. Uh, look to the Lord. And then that means you look to the Lord to his strength specifically. You're looking for him as the source. But after you know that he's the source, approach him close enough to seek his face. In other words, seek. You need to go find the face and get in it and then stare in his eyes to have that connection. And remember the wonders that he's done. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to Antioch Center for the Nations. If you would like to support our efforts, please consider making a donation at www.antiochchurch.sg. Thank you.